All right, Acts chapter 14 is where we're going to be at this morning. And uh, as you guys make your way to the 14th chapter in the Acts of the Apostles, let me just remind you where we've been these last couple of weeks. We have continued our journey through Acts, and when we went through chapter 13, or as we began chapter 13, uh, I reminded you this is really the last phase that Jesus promised was going to take place in Acts chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1, verse 8, he said that the word is going to go forth, that they're going to receive power to be witnesses of him to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so when we arrive in chapter 13, the first missionary journey begins as Paul and Barnabas are going to take the message to the ends of the earth. And so they began the journey as they went out and set forth from Antioch. And this particular Antioch is on the border between Syria and modern-day Turkey. It's on the right-hand side of the screen. They set sail from there to an island of Cyprus out in the Mediterranean. And the reason they most likely picked this island is because it was the home area of Barnabas. And so as Barnabas was you know, they were talking about where they were going to begin and praying through it. He says, you know what? I know an island that is in great need of the Lord. And so they took the word of God to the island of Cyprus, and they really were met uh, with some pretty tremendous response. In fact, the governor, the proconsul of the island, a guy named Sergius Paulus, came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And so some pretty tremendous response they saw there. And they set sail after Cyprus up into Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey, and they made their way up to another Antioch. This one is Antioch in Pisidia, and as they arrived there, they didn't have the same kind of response. In fact, uh, they were met with a lot of resistance. They were, they were kicked out of Antioch in Pisidia, expelled. I don't know if that sounds better than being kicked out, but either way, they were, they were ejected from Antioch, and they made their way from there into Iconium, and that's where we're going to find ourselves as we pick up in chapter 14, they've been uh, removed from Antioch and Pisidia, and now they're going to go to the next town over, the town of Iconium. And so chapter 14, verse 1, And now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and of Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. And so what Paul did is what he would consistently do as he went into a new area. They began there in the synagogue. They began taking the word of God first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And the reason wasn't because God loves the Jews so much more than he did the Gentiles, but the reality was uh, they had the Old Testament. They had the very oracles of Scripture already in their hands. And so what better place to start than showing Jesus Christ as their Messiah on every page than with their Old Testament scriptures. And so they would begin there in the synagogue, and as they began, we're told that many believed, and yet there were some that did not. And they began to stir up dissension. They began to whisper lies and rumors, and their attempt was to discredit the messenger. You see, this happens even to this day. When people cannot discredit the message, and by the way, um, the message that you hold in your hand, uh, it's 4,000 years old. People have tried to discredit it for centuries and centuries and millennia, and they cannot discredit it. But what they can do and what they do attempt to do is discredit the messenger. And so it's why it's so very important as we gather together and congregate in church to not listen to whispers 
and rumors and lies. Many a church has been set in the wrong direction because people far too often listen to the whispers and don't focus on the message at hand. And so this is what's taking place now in Iconium as they begin. Now verse 3, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, there's whispers and rumors and lies being told about Paul and Barnabas. Did you pick up on what they did as a response? They stayed. <laughs> I mean, Paul's like, you know what? Things are going pretty bad. People are wanting to run us out. They're lying about us. They're saying all kinds of mean things about us. And what is so often our response? It's to flee, right? It's, I want to get anywhere but here. I want to bail on this situation. And yet Paul says, hey, you know what? Uh, for this reason, we better stick around. We better gut this thing out a little bit. And so they stuck around in the midst of what was happening. And what we find is God blessed it. He allowed Paul and Barnabas to do great signs and wonders right there, not just for the sake of the sign and wonder, but to validate the message. They're trying to discredit the message. God is allowing them to perform these things so the message can be validated because ultimately it's all about the word of grace. That's what is written right here in the middle of this section by Luke, that they were bearing witness to the word of his grace. A sign and a wonder never saved, but the word of his grace can save everyone, you see. And so the signs pointed back to the word of God. Now verse 4, but the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And so now they have a city that's steeped in division. There are people that agree with Paul and Barnabas, and there are folks that strongly do not agree with them. And in verse 5, and when a violent attempt was made by both the Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. And so people began to be stirred up by gossip that was taking place about Paul and Barnabas. And as they were stirred up, a, a, a uh, attempt to take their lives actually came about. And so Paul and Barnabas, hearing about this, they left the area. They departed instead to the next town over, to Lister and to Derby. And what Paul writes to Titus specifically speaking about divisive people. This is what was taking place, a, a divided people, a group that could not agree. He says in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, to reject a divisive man after the first and the second admonition. That this is the word when it comes to divisiveness, that there is nothing more dangerous for a, church or for a group of people than divisiveness. It gets in and it wreaks havoc in the cracks and the crevices of the human condition. And the real issue, among other things, with divisiveness is uh, there's no faith in divisiveness. What, what divisiveness does or what it says in our hearts is that I think I've got a plan to fix this. I see the problem. I think I know how to fix this. If I just get this person removed by any means necessary, if I've got to create a coup to overthrow them, to get them out, to remove them from the situation, I'm going to make a plan. And that right there has no faith in it whatsoever. And so this is the unbelief that takes place in the hearts of the people. And so from there, Paul and Barnabas leave this area of Iconium, but notice with me, uh, they continue to preach. They did not stop preaching the gospel. Also something interesting is that 
But what, it, what I mentioned at the beginning is when Paul would go into a new area, where would they start? But the synagogue. Notice with me, as they go to Lister, they just simply begin preaching the gospel. They did not go to a synagogue. The reason they didn't go, many believe, is because there was no synagogue. That it would take in an area at least 10 Jewish males practicing Jews in order for them to have a synagogue. And so what you realize is the area they're going to be good is a very pagan culture. It's a, a polytheistic group. That just means many gods. And so they're headed into a new area, a spot that has no knowledge of God, but instead of many gods and false idols, and that's going to come into play as they head into Lister. And in verse 8, And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, and Paul, observing him intently, seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up! Straight on your feet! And he leapt and walked. And so as Paul is speaking, as he is preaching the word of God, he looks upon this man's face, and he could tell this guy's locked in. He is tracking with me, and wait a minute, he's got enough faith that if it was just activated, if someone just said, hey man, you've got the faith, God's already given it to you, now stand up and walk. So Paul says to the man, stand up, and instead of just standing, notice the guy leaped and walked. He was doing a little walk this way action, right? Like nobody saw this coming. It was a very dramatic series of events that happened all because the man already had the faith. He just needed it activated. He just needed somebody to point it out and say, you've got it. God's given it to you. Now, the response goes back to them being a polytheistic culture. Verse 11. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And then the priest of, Jew, of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garland to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. And so as this miracle takes place in the midst of them, their reaction was, the gods have come down before us. Now what's important to understand throughout uh, mythology is that this area has a little bit of a track record with Zeus and Hermes. That what uh, they believed is that hundreds of years before, uh, Zeus and Hermes came and visited the area of Lystra as men, as regular, ordinary people. And as they went to this city, no one regarded them. In fact, they treated them rather poorly. And so Zeus and Hermes uh, cast a great curse upon Lystra. Only two people actually treated them well, a husband and wife, a, a man named Philemon and a woman named uh, Bacchus. And so they believe Zeus and Hermes turned them into two trees as a way to memorialize them, probably acorn trees. I mean, this whole story is just nuts. It's not, look, humor, that's as good as it's going to get. You can, yeah, we can all be awkward with that. So anyway, it's not the most tremendous joke I've ever told. But nevertheless, turned into trees, and so the rest of the people there uh, in Lystra, they were cursed. Now you begin to understand, as this miracle unfolds and it takes place, they were fearful. Anytime a guest would come into this area, is this Zeus, is this Hermes? And so the fear of their idolatry begins to 
take place. And they look at Paul and Barnabas and they say, this must be them. This is a miracle like we've never seen before. And so they begin to worship them. Now I would submit to you, um, this spot that Paul and Barnabas are in is the most dangerous position they have been in their ministry up to this point. Way more dangerous than nearly being stoned to death or kicked out of a city or ran off or chased off. Uh, they were about to be worshipped. And what uh, Paul understood, thankfully, was that there was no place for him to be able to accept worship in this spot. Now, for uh, Paul, he could have done what would have been easy for any of us really to do and said, you know, I've got this unique opportunity God's given me. People are looking very uh, kindly upon me. If I just allow them to believe, if I just let the story play out, I'll be able to share Jesus. If I just allow, if I compromise just a little bit, then maybe I can actually turn this and use this for good. But the issue is, anytime we begin to compromise, a seed of corruption always takes place. And corruption always leads to death. And so Paul is thankfully going to be unwilling to compromise in this dangerous spot that he's in. Verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes, that's a sign of mourning or great distress, and ran in among the multitudes, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all the things that are in them. And so Paul immediately tries to turn them back to where the glory belongs. We should not attempt to take any of God's glory. He won't stand for it. And so Paul tells them, look, look to the heavens and to the skies. I'm speaking to you about the God who made these things. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the very glory of God. And the firmament, the firmament declares his greatness. And so we see the very glory of God there in the heavens. But what uh, humanism always wants is put us on the throne. What Solomon says in Ecclesiastes is that to each of us was given the understanding that eternity is in our hearts. We all have a place in our heart to know that eternity is at hand. We all know that this thing is only temporary at best. And so we were created, designed to worship. The question is, are we going to worship God? Are we going to remove him off the throne? Because when we remove him off the throne, you know who we put on there, right? Us. We are our own favorite thing to put on the throne. That's exactly what secular humanism is all about, and it's rampant in our Western culture. And so we attempt to put ourselves on the throne of God, and yet we make absolutely awful gods. We're really, really bad at it. In Psalm 115, I'll go there and read for you. I'm going to pick up in verse 3. Verse 8 is what I want to highlight. But the psalmist here writing about idols and idolatry says, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their mouth. Those who make them are like them, so everyone who trusts in them. So what the psalmist is saying, what 
Paul is trying to direct them to is that when you believe in these false gods, when you believe in these false idols, you will eventually become like what you worship. They have eyes, but they don't see, ears, but they don't hear. They become deaf. They become mute. They become essentially unable to move or do anything because they have turned these idols into God. Now, going back to the Old Testament, I know you guys love the Old Testament stories. For the nation of Israel, they even had an issue where they attempted to make the Ark of the Covenant like an idol. They were struggling in battle against the Philistines there in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and so they took the very Ark of God, the, this golden box that God said to build that had the jar of manna and the Ten Commandments and the rod of Aaron that budded in it, and they thought, you know what we need? We need a symbol out in front of the people. But rather than trusting in God for deliverance, they trusted in the ark. And so they put it right out there at the beginning of the battle. Lord, go to work for us. We trust in your box. And so they put the ark out there, and they go into battle. And what happens is they absolutely get their heinies whipped. They get it handed to them by the Philistines. And what makes matters worse is they took the ark. They took their box away. They took it, and they put it in the temple of Dagon, the Philistine God, this half-man, half-fish God there in the temple of Dagon. And they set the Ark of the Covenant there. And what happened is after a while, a great plague broke out among the Philistines. Uh, tumors began to grow on people. Now, a little bit PG-13 in this part, but the word tumor in Hebrew is actually uh, hemorrhoid. The, the people were plagued with the plague of hemorrhoids. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. So they realized the ark of God was a tremendous pain in the butt. And so, there you go. Now, so they go into the temple of Dagon to pray about this rash of hemorrhoids that's broken out in amongst the people. And as they get there, what they find is uh, Dagon has fallen over and his hands have broken off in front of the ark of the covenant. And so they go in, they get a hold of Dagon, and they prop him back up, and they pray, Dagon, please relieve us from these hemorrhoids that are taking place throughout all the land. And they go back in the next day to pray again, and Dagon's fallen over again in front of the Ark of the Covenant. This time his fishy part broken apart from the human part, and they prop him back up again. And I share that story to say that if we have to go in and prop our God up, over and over again, what kind of God is he at all? What kind of needs you and I to come in and stand him up over and over again in the face of the true and living God? And what I believe happens is that over and over again, God allows these false gods, these idols, the things that we allow to be put on his throne instead of him, uh, like our career or our own selfish desires, even our families over and over again be knocked down until we put him on the throne not because God's an egomaniac but because he knows it's good for us he wants us to place and put our confidence in the one who will never fail who will never fall over in the face of another God who will never be busted and broken apart and so this is where he wants us to place all of our trust now then Back to the text at hand, verse 16. And Paul continues saying, who in bygone generations allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. He's 
speaking now about the true and living God. He says, look, in, in past generations, God has allowed nations to walk in their own ways. Why? Because love always demands a choice. Love doesn't dictate you must love me here, you must feel this way there. Love demands a choice. Forced love isn't love at all. There's another word. It gets you 20 years in prison. God is all about love, and it has to have a choice associated with it. But what happens then when we ignore the word of God? Take a look around. (laughs) When we wonder what happens when a nation completely ignores the word of God or a culture does, it looks like violence and insurrection and fear and plotting and scheming and more fear and more hate. It goes on and on and on again. Why? Because God's word is being ignored. And yet, in the midst of all that, verse 17 Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without a witness, and that he did good. He gave us rain from the heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. In spite of ourselves, in spite of all the ways we turn from God, here's God's response. He's still good. He is still good, even in the midst of our idolatry and wickedness and turning to the left and to the right, He allows good things into our life, even though we do not deserve them. When God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 34 about his character, it's important to understand that this this one's highlighter worthy if you don't already have it done so. As Moses was crying out to God to please show me your glory, he just see the Lord pass before him, and God finally allows it. Exodus chapter 34 verse 6, as God passes him, this is what he says about himself. He says, the Lord passed by before him, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and in truth. Yahweh, Yahweh, Elohim. Merciful and gracious is how God describes himself. The first two words he uses to speak about himself. What is mercy? Mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. What we each and every one of us deserve is hell and death, condemnation, right? But instead, what he gives us is graciousness. He gives us what we do not deserve. That's the definition of grace, unmerited favor. He gives us heaven and eternity. New life is what he's offering. And so this is what God says about himself. In spite of all the ways you want to turn from me, I am still going to find a way to do good. Now then, verse 18, as Paul wraps up his little sermonette, and with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. And so even as Paul's sharing with them, please don't sacrifice to us. Stop this thing. The people could barely restrain themselves, and yet they did. He holds them off from sacrificing to him and Barnabas. And then verse 19, and then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stopped Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. <laughs> so remember the story. Paul and Barnabas heal a man. It's a miracle. They believe them to be Zeus and Hermes. They're gods. They're celebrating these men. They're so tremendous. And then 
these characters from Iconium and all these uh, haters from the outside area, uh, they show up and they begin to speak the lies and the rumors about Paul and Barnabas. And the reaction was to take them out and stone them. To stone Paul to death. And it just reminds me of what a fickle bunch of people we are. How quickly we take someone and we prop them up. Man, they're the greatest. Take them out and stone them. Let's just kill them. Let's be done with them. On to the next one. That's precisely what happens, which is why Solomon says in Proverbs 29, 25, that the approval of man is a snare. It's a trap. You're never going to receive it. Any of you that have worked a job for any length of time, how many times have you been the hero? Man, I'm the man today. And then zero tomorrow. I mean, it's over. It's overnight. It's amazing how it can take place when we seek after and try to get people's approval. But the reality is, if we do things for Christ Jesus, if we go all in for him, even a stoning is glorifying. Here's Paul. He's taken out. He is stoned. I believe he is actually uh, stoned to death at this point. I'll tell you why here in just a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. Paul does not specifically say this is him, but I believe he is alluding to this, so you read that into it if you like. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, the time frame fits when he wrote 2 Corinthians to this time frame here, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up into the third heaven. I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. What Paul experienced as he was in this near death or actual death part of his life, after being stoned, this horrific series of events as God showed him heaven. And what Paul saw, he said, you know what? It's not even lawful for me to write it. Which, by the way, makes me always question any book somebody writes and says, I went to heaven and this is what it looked like. Because here's the Apostle Paul and he says, man, words, I don't even have words. And this is a guy who wrote half of our New Testament. He said, I don't even have words for that. In the middle of this awful series of events, after which, if you continued in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh that he prayed to be removed. I believe it's possible that the beating that Paul took here, he's going to suffer physical damage that he never recovered from. And you can imagine being stoned to death. He's probably going to hurt for a while, a little bit. And so he most likely suffered a tremendous amount of physical pain. And yet, even in the middle of that, he knew it's only temporary. The worst thing this world can do to me is kill me, and I get to go to heaven. I'm not worried any longer about what man decides to think. I'm going to worry about what Jesus says. And so here's the spot that Paul is in. Now, in verse 20, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And so they now drag Paul outside of the city. And what do his buddies do, these other disciples? They just stand around like a bunch of workers on the side of the highway. Like, ah, we don't really know what to do with this. Not really sure what's going on here. So they're just standing around. And Paul just 
pops up like the Energizer Bunny. I mean, he's like, boom, popped up, ready to go, ready to go again. What I like about this story, though, one of the, a couple things. Uh, first of all, I think lots of times we don't get involved because we don't know what to do. And often, God just wants us to be around. He wants us to just be present, that we think we've got to do something. There's something in this that I must do, and God's saying, I just want you to be there. I just want you to put yourself, put your arm rested on a shovel. Just stand and watch the glory of the Lord. But these men did put themselves out there just by being identified with Paul, put them in harm's way. They had no idea what to do, but God did. He raised Paul up, who just pops back up, and then notice with me what he does. He goes back into the city. He goes back into the people that tried to stone him to death, or did stone him to death. That's some kind of determination. I don't know about you, but when I am being picked on and persecuted and pushed on, I just want to quit. I just want to be done. I don't want to suffer like this anymore. I'll just go my own way and, and not mess with this anymore. And yet, Paul went back into the city to continue the work that he'd started. What do you do with a man like that? Nothing. There's nothing that's going to stop Paul because he's in the will of the Lord. Now then, verse 21 and when they had preached the gospel to that city and many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And so after they had preached to this city, they now turned around and doubled back to encourage and speak into the lives of these people that they had just established churches in. Second Timothy, Paul actually writes about this particular time in his life. This is the final letter from Paul as he writes to his young protege. In chapter 3, verse 10, this will be the most popular point of the message. Don't worry. But you have carefully followed my doctrine and manner of life and purpose, of faith, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecution I endured. In all of them, the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Aren't you glad you came this morning? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Doesn't mean that it always looks like a stoning or being drug outside of the city, but here's the reality. There is no way we can avoid being persecuted to all who seek after Christ we will be persecuted I think we spend a tremendous amount of time in our lives and even in church trying to come up with programs and formulas and 10 steps that we can do to avoid persecution and to avoid trouble but what scripture says is if you're going to live in Christ you're going to be persecuted someone's going to come along and they're going to have something to say or some evil to try to speak into your life but here's the promise to not leave you in that spot second corinthians chapter one this is what paul says in verse nine he says yes we had the sentence of death in ourselves 
that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will deliver us. Did you catch what Paul said? The trust that we can have, the the faith that we need to have is not in our own formulas or strategy or strategery or anything we want to come up with to avoid persecution. It's in him who delivers. What Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians is it's in him who has delivered us, who is delivering us, and who will deliver us. Past, present, future. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And the reality is we can trust him because we can trust his track record. Now then, verse 22. In strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Paul's talking about this persecution. He's saying, look, through tribulations, these are the things that we endure as we head into the kingdom of God. And yet, as we endure these things, we continue in faith. Because the reality is, and you know this from uh, being a little kid in Bible school, what's one of our favorite stories but Daniel chapter 3, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or as I like to call them, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. Here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fire with, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. And yet in the midst of the fire, what does he see but a fourth? Nebuchadnezzar says in it, he has the appearance of the Son of God. There's God with them right there in the fire. And yet do you realize that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not come out of the fire? until they were called to come out of the fire. They stayed right there with Jesus in the flesh because even in the midst of the fire, they were in the safest place they could be. To everybody else, it looked like the most dangerous spot, and yet in the will of God, there with Christ Jesus himself, they stayed until he said, time to go. And as they're called out of the fire, do you notice how many were called out of the fire? Do you remember that? Only three. The fourth remained in the fire, just as he is with us to this day. We go in and out of trials and tribulations. We go in and out of pain and suffering, and we have our highs and our lows, and the reality is in this Christian walk, here's the truth about tribulations. You're either in a tribulation, you're coming out of a tribulation, or you're headed back into the next tribulation. It's this series of events, this cycle that takes place, and yet every single scenario, he's already there in the fire waiting on us, fighting our battles for us. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, is there fighting for us each and every step of the way. That's who Paul is talking about as he's encouraging these churches that are being persecuted. Now then, verse 23, so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commanded them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so Paul and Barnabas go back to these churches and they appoint leaders in these churches. But do you realize this whole series of events took place in the course of a year? So at the very most, these new Christians that Paul's speaking to, they haven't even known Christ Jesus for more than a year. 
but he speaks into their life because it's not about longevity. It's about the heart. God's always after the heart of the matter. And so Paul and Barnabas appoint these men as leaders in these new churches, and they proceed to not micromanage every step that they're going to do, but instead commend them to the Lord. Lord, you're going to have to work this out in them. We cannot, when we appoint people as leaders in church, tell them every single step they must take or every path they must walk. We have to commend and trust people to the Lord. You're going to have to walk through this yourself. Now then, verse 24. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalea. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of the Lord for the work which they had completed. And so as they complete this circle, going back through this uh, whole group of churches they planted, they come back to their home church to be uh, refreshed. They double back to give them this second dose of encouragement. Now remember, as they double back, these are the cities they've been beaten, uh, ran off, expelled, spoken evil of. Uh, they go back to those places. They speak back into the lives of these people and encourage them. Now then, verse 27, Now when they had come together, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And so as they come back around, wrapping up their first missionary journey, they end up back in Antioch, the original spot of the Gentile church there in Antioch. As they arrive there, they spend this time being refreshed. They're getting reached and encouraged by all the believers there in this spot. And notice what they report. They report all that God had done and doors he opened. What a tremendous report. But do you notice what was missing from that report? No mention of uh, stonings or beatings or murder plots. Hey, I want to tell you the whole story. I want to tell you all the ways we were chased out of this town and that town. I don't see any mention of the negative things that happened, but instead as Paul and Barnabas shared, they talked about all that God had done with them and all the doors that he had opened to the Gentiles. I wonder as we share with what God's up to in our lives, how many times we spend entirely too much time in the story talking about all the negative, all the things that have gone wrong, the ways we've been beaten and chased and tortured and tormented, all these things. I, I hear testimonies lots of times, and they sound like this. It's about two-thirds spent with all the awful that had taken place, all the horrible. I remember the time I was beaten and stoned and abused and tortured. It was awful. I even got this fungus on my foot. It was so bad. Loterman, Tanactin, none of it would help it. Right? But God's good. Jesus is good. The end. Wait a minute. What about all the stuff Jesus did? All the awesome things he delivered you from? This is what it looks like so often. We share with all the negative and the awful, and we end up shortchanging all the good that God was up to in the midst of it. But don't you see that the whole time, as Paul and Barnabas are sharing, we want to tell you all the good things God's doing. 
We want to tell you all the ways he was opening doors. Yeah, there might have been some pain, and this might have hurt. We might have taken a few lumps. I mean, Paul was killed. But other than that, God brought him back. We went back in and preached. You see, what Paul was learning or either had learned was that we can always trust the Lord's track record. That over and over again in our life, he is seeking to deliver us through the trial and through the tribulation. The real question is, what lenses are we going to look at this life through? Are we going to look at it through the lens of faith? Are we going to look at it through the lens of our doubt and our pain and our suffering? Hebrews chapter 11 is the last place I want to take you. It'll be a familiar set of verses to many of you. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. That's what faith looks like. Faith looks like the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders have a good testimony. Our testimony is good because he who gave it to us is good. That over and over again, as he delivers us out of these trials and tribulations, we get to share the good things God did in seemingly an otherwise awful situation. Only God could make those things good, you see. And he's at work even in the midst. And what I find fascinating about this chapter of Hebrews, and no, I'm not going to go through all of Hebrews 11, so don't worry. But if you look through this, this is known as the Hall of Faith in our New Testament. There are all these Old Testament hero, heroes that are listed throughout Hebrews 11. But as you start going through the names, you see people like uh, Barak and Samson and Jephthah. And you have all these names and you go, wait a minute. These men are listed and it's talked about their great faith. But when you go through the Old Testament, do you know what they lacked over and over again? Faith. They lacked faith. I mean, some of these people, like Samson's listed here, his jacked-up mess. But through the lens of the Holy Spirit, it's not mentioned in Hebrews 11. That's what it looks like to look at things through God's goggles, through God's lenses, and not our own. Lots of times we think we've disqualified ourselves from ministry or from serving or from getting involved because I've got all this in my past but through the perfect blood of Christ what God sees is none of it it's all been taken away through the blood of Jesus and so Father we thank you and we praise you for your lenses we thank you for the ability to every now and again see all the good that you're up to so many times we get sidetracked and sidelined because we can only focus on the negative and the hurt and the deception and all the things that happen. And lots of times, Lord, these things even happen at church of all places. The very place these things should not take place and people should find comfort and solace. Instead, it's just more pain. But Father, that's not your heart. That's not your desire. We know through this Study today what you want us to do, what you desire for, from us is to hear and to push through. Would you give us 
Lord Jesus, would you give this group here this morning and those watching us online, please give us the ability to have that kind of faith. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to be able to walk through this fire, to be able to endure in the fire until you say it's time to go, knowing that it's actually forged us. It's actually made us who we are, the impurities brought forth so that it can be scraped off so we can become more and more and more like you, even through persecution. Lord, thank you for never leaving us, never abandoning us, always being right there with us. Father God, would you please continue to open up doors? Would you please continue to open up pathways for us to be able to go into this community and to interact? Thank you so much for the word of grace. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? your feet every moment of my wandering never changes what you see I try to win this war I couldn't face my hands are weary I need your rest mighty warrior king of the fight no matter what I face, you're by my side. When you don't move the mountain, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the empties, as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. is you know what tomorrow brings there's not a day ahead you have not seen so let all things be my life and breath. i want what you want lord and nothing less when you don't move them out i'm needing you to move when you don't bite the water i wish i could walk
And the church says, Amen.